I once traveled to Estonia, a country on the Baltic Sea just west of Russia, for the purpose of attending a conference at the Baltic Methodist Seminary in Tallinn. While in Estonia, I was invited to preach at a Methodist church in the town of Jofi. And this particular church offered two Sunday morning worship services, one in the Russian language and one in the Estonian language. Since Russian and Estonian are the two primary languages in the Estonian network of communication, and therefore my preaching in that context required both the work of an interpreter and a steady rhythm of pausing and translation. Pausing and translation. I had not experienced that before. An interesting way to preach. After the sermon in each of the worship services, we celebrated the sacrament of Holy Communion. And the pastor of that congregation held the bread, I held the cup. And people would come forward, just as you will be invited to come forward this evening, and they would break off an individual piece of the bread. Then they would step over to where I was standing, and they would proceed to dip that bread into the cup. And to each person, I would offer those familiar sacramental words. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. And the interpreter who was standing right beside me throughout would recommunicate those words either in Russian or Estonian. A woman came forward that day whose face I still remember vividly. She appeared to be a woman in her mid-60s, and she wore on her countenance, this is the only way I know how to put it, she wore on her countenance an intensity of expression that led me to believe that her life had not been an easy one. And she paused as she was standing before me long enough to stare into my eyes and speak several sentences in Russian that I did not understand and so I turned to the interpreter who waved me off no joke she waved me off what she's saying is too complicated to translate right now I'll talk to you about it after worship And so after the benediction, my curiosity compelled me to seek out this interpreter. Please, I said to her, that woman seemed so emphatic in the point that she was making. Can you tell me what she was saying? What she was saying was very idiomatic, difficult to translate, the interpreter said. I don't know whether it will make any sense to you in English. But what that woman literally said to you is that Jesus is the heart of God beating wildly under our skin. And then she repeated those three words as though she truly believed that those would have been the words that I would not understand, that they would somehow be lost in translation, under our skin. The woman said that it was important to her to say that to you before she received the bread and the cup. She wanted you to know that she knew that Jesus was the heart of God beating wildly under our skin. Does that make any sense to you? And I said, well, yeah, it, it kind of does, especially in the context of communion, because let's be honest, communion evokes all these strange thoughts about the divine heart and human skin, both of which are reflected in the sacramental bread and wine. So yeah, the words do make sense to me, at least generally in the context of Holy Communion. 
But here's the thing. I found out about this woman later that she had lost both her husband and her adult son to cancer within the last 15 months. And all of a sudden, the words that she spoke to me that day became so much clearer. They made much greater sense to me. This woman's life had been devastated. Of course she wanted to talk to this visiting preacher from the United States about a God who would dare to place the divine heart under the skin of human suffering. Of course she wanted to talk with me about that. It was as though she was making the point that Jesus for her was not simply a theoretical doctrine. Rather, Jesus for her was the very heart of God beating wildly with grace and love and mercy under the tattered flesh of her expansive grief. Of course she wanted me to know that. It's interesting, isn't it, that that phrase, under one's skin, carries such a negative connotation in the English language. For example, if you were to walk up to me after this worship service and say, Eric, wow, you're really getting under my skin. And I pray that I will never inspire you to do that. But if you said that to me, I would not be quick to interpret that as an affirmation. I would take that to mean that I was annoying you to the point of standing on your very last nerve. But tonight, tonight I'm inviting us to recontextualize that phrase under our skin so that we might hold it like that Estonian woman held it. Not as an expression of annoyance, but as an encapsulation of the mystery and the miracle of the Christmas story. And friends, I'm inviting you to do that because when we move beneath the layers of Christmas, and sometimes that's such an incredibly difficult thing to do because there are a lot of layers. But when we move beneath the layers of Christmas, we find this bizarre, compelling story that the church has proclaimed and celebrated for some 2,000 years. It's essentially a story about this sovereign God who in what Scripture describes as the fullness of time made the decision to step out of the landscape of eternity and travel into the deepest portions of the human pilgrimage, willingly placing the divine heart under our skin and thereby joining God's very self to humankind's vulnerability and joy and suffering and progress. I suppose that it is a perpetual temptation to reduce the incarnation. And when I use the word incarnation, I simply mean by that the mysterious in the fleshness of God that is at the heart of the Christmas story. And I suppose that it is a perpetual temptation to reduce the incarnation to little more than a theological idea to be debated. The incarnation happened. No, it didn't. It happened this way. No, it happened this way. It meant this. No, you're wrong. It means this. And I hold no presuppositions about where it is that you place yourself in the spectrum of faith. I would not dishonor you that way. But tonight, I will be bold enough to ask you to resist the temptation to reduce the incarnation to nothing more than a theological debate. And instead, I will invite you I will invite you to use your heart's poetry 
to consider the possibility that something mystical happened on that first Christmas, something that is far beyond the parameters of human analysis and human comprehension. I'm inviting you to open your soul's imagination to the possibility that the God of the ages made the trip from sovereignty to swaddling clothes, from the heavenly realm to human flesh. Why? Why in the world would the God of the universe make such a trip? And by the way, that question, why, is far more compelling than the how question on Christmas Eve. Why? And you might have your own thoughts about God's motives that way. Would love to talk with you about that. But those inside the church often learn a verse of Scripture when they're very young that addresses the why question in a very straightforward fashion. And the verse to which I'm making reference goes like this. For God so loved the world that God gave the eternal Son. For God so loved the world this world, this often broken, maddening, heartbreaking world, for God so loved this world that God gave us Jesus. See, in this world where so many people are conditioned, really, to conceptualize God as this cold-hearted overseer driven by little more than contempt, The beauty of Christmas is that it has this way of bringing us back to what we believe to be the the essence, the essential portion of God's character. And that is God's relentless, ridiculous, incarnational love. For God so loved the world. In fact, God says through the Christ child, I love this world so recklessly that I'm going to place the divine heart under human skin thereby joining creation and its creator in this transformational oneness that changes everything. As we sit here in this beautiful worship space, please understand that we are not unmindful of the horrible circumstances in this world. How can we be? Let's be realistic about that for a moment. As we sit here in this beautiful sanctuary space, there are parents around our city and around our world that are making these agonizing decisions about which family members will receive food and how much and when because there is not sufficient food for everybody in the household. I know that to be true. And as we sit here in this beautiful worship space, there are families gathered around sick children in neonatal natal intensive care units, and they are terrified about what the future might hold. That's reality. And as we sit here in this sanctuary, there are soldiers around the world who find themselves in harm's way, caught up in conflicts that they do not even understand. And yes, as we sit here in this sanctuary, there are precious souls in Gaza and in Israel caught up in a violent struggle for the very land into which the the Prince of Peace was born. These situations that I've just described and many others like them generate suffering, the profundity of which is beyond our words. You know that. And yet, at Christmas time, the people of the church have the audacity 
And that's the right word to use. We have the audacity to sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Why? Why do we sing joy to the world? It's certainly not to minimize human suffering and its impact. No. We sing joy to the world because we dare to believe that the God of the ages has placed the divine heart under the skin of our suffering. And the end result of that is this redemptive intimacy in which no portion of human suffering and no portion of your suffering is ever outside what this God can see and feel and experience and take personally. We sing joy to the world because of this redemptive intimacy in which no thread of human suffering, no matter how ugly a thread it might be, no thread of human suffering and no thread of your suffering is ever outside of what this God is weaving into what we might describe as a tapestry of redemption, the kind of tapestry in which no thread goes wasted, no thread is left on the floor. We sing joy to the world, in other words, because we believe that there is this divine heart under the tattered flesh of every human experience, beating wildly with love and grace. And the good news of Christmas, friends, the good news of Christmas is that that divine and wildly beating heart under our skin is Jesus in whose name we come to the table and in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.